Today's reading is from Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, and can be found on page 995 in the Church Bibles. The Sheep and the Goats When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes, and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to the eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, acknowledge the Lord Jesus as our Lord and help us today as I try to explain this parable and as we uh, clearly hear what is being said here. Amen. Well, there are 12 days to the uh, general election. And while we don't know who is going to form a government, there is one thing that we do know. And that is that there will be a new, in fact there is, a new Speaker of the House of Commons. Mr. Speaker Burko is no more. No longer. Will he have to strain his vocal cords by shouting, order, order, the ending of which sounds more like a long A or da, rather than E-R or duh. But what is the other word that the Speaker of the Commons is usually noted for? 
Well, let me look over there to that particular block of people for a moment, the one where Janet is in. And uh, let me pick on somebody <laughs> and ask you, what is it that it's the other word that the Speaker of the House of Commons says? Well, I could just pick on the third row, couldn't I? But I'm not that cruel. Well, I am, I could be, but I'm not going to be. Because probably, well, I could see it on the faces of some of you, when I said that block, you started, your eyes, your pupils, you became anxious. You were thinking, I haven't got a clue. And he is going to humiliate me in front of everybody. I will be exposed my ignorance known by everyone. Previously I've kept it secret. But now they're all going to think I'm a complete dimwit. Well, rest assured, I'm not going to do that. Even though, of course, it does give us a taste of what it is like to be exposed in front of everybody. And gives us perhaps an insight into something about this parable we've had read to us? Well, the answer is divide. Divide. MPs are told to get up and to vote. Eyes to the right, nose to the left. It is decision time. The fate of a bill which has passed its various stages in the House of Commons and partially in the House of Lords is decided, will it be accepted or will it be rejected? Today is Advent Sunday, a Sunday when we focus not on the first coming of Christ, it's not the start of Christmas, but rather a focus on the second coming of Christ, on the last day, when as the creed says, he will come to judge the living and the dead. That is D-Day. That is Decision Day, when there will be the great divide. Well, the context of uh, this parable, uh, Matthew 24 and 25 in his uh, Gospel, has had a record of Jesus preparing his disciples for the time between his ascension, when he leaves earth and goes to heaven, and his second coming, when he will leave heaven and come to earth. And in those two chapters, often through various parables, Jesus has taught this, that no one will know when he will return. Even he didn't know, he said. So we are to be unlike the ten virgins in the parable who were not on the lookout for his return, who were not ready for it. We are like in the parable of the talents, to put our God-given talent to his service and be ready for when he should return. And then we have the sheep and the goats. So the Lord Jesus will return. He takes this divine figure from uh, the book of Daniel, the Son of Man, from Daniel 7, 13 and 14, 
and he adopts it for himself. It's how he, well, in fact, it's his most, his most popular self-designation. He most often refers to himself as the son of man. And that's as clear a claim to divinity as you can get. He says, 2531, At the end of this age, the end of time, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that is as he really is, fully human and fully divine, with all his angels, they are the spiritual beings who have been loyal to him, as opposed to the fallen angels who are the spiritual beings who have been disloyal to him. And then Jesus says, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All nations, that's everybody who has ever lived, will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another. Or, like a shepherd, separates the sheep from the goats. You see, in the early first, in the first century and today, if you go to the Holy Land and see in the distance from the roads, you can see sheep and goats. You wonder what on earth they are living on because all you can see is dust and dirt. But, you know, behind little hills there might be a little spring and a little bit of grass and that's what they survive on. Now, at a distance, it's a bit difficult to pick out a sheep from a goat. They're pretty scraggy varieties of sheep that look more like goats. But, uh, of course, at night, goats don't have as much sort of uh, covering. And goats need to gather together in order to share their warmth, whereas sheep can quite happily snuggle down under those nice fleeces. And so that's what the shepherd would do. He would separate them one from the other. And so the son of man, the judge, is like the shepherd who at the end of the day separates the sheep from the goats. It says he will put the sheep on his right, which in the ancient world was always a position of favour, and the goats on his left. I suppose we can all recall from our, particularly our primary school days, of the experience of uh, selection. The teacher chooses two people to be captains, and they in turn, from the class, pick their team. And you've got a pretty good idea, a pretty good indication as, regards, as to how your sporting prowess or lack of it was judged by how soon or how late you were chosen. So, from the opening three verses, we learn quite a number of things that I, we, are accountable. I'm free to live as I want, but there will come a day when I will have to give an account In job descriptions, employers often mess up the words accountable and responsible and get them around the wrong way. It is the sort of thing that grumpy old vicars, you know, towards the end of their life, kind of get pernickety about, really. Especially when I'm sent a request for a reference and has the personnel specification and the job description. Now, it should be 
that we are responsible for certain tasks and subordinate employees, and we are at the same time accountable to a higher authority, our boss or a board, for the things and people that we are responsible for. So we are all responsible for using our lives in the way that God intended. And, at the same time, we are accountable to him for how we have carried out those responsibilities. Next we learn that judgment will be for all people from every nation. There are no exceptions, no favouritism, no excuses, no escapes. There is a variable that we're judged based on the, on the knowledge that we have been given, and some have been given more than others. God makes allowance for that. The response is the same. Even the little, the smallest amount that we can know, which the Bible suggests is that there is a God, a creator, and that we are in the wrong with that God. That should, that should prompt a response of repentance, and of faith. Somehow that God can accept me, even though I don't know how. That's Romans 1. And thirdly, we're not all going in the same direction by different roads. On the road map, there are two, and only two, very different destinations. It's possible to become utterly lost along the way. I want to focus on two features which are particularly worthy of note. One is the basis of the judgment here. What is the criterion for assessment which the judge will use? And the second is the outcome, the result of his verdict. Do those with an adverse verdict simply cease to exist, which is referred to as annihilation, or do they exist but absence from the presence of God? Eternal consciousness but in the wrong place. Now what's the basis for judgment? Well this is how this passage is often understood. On the last day we will be judged as to how kind we have been to the poor. Verses 35 and 36. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. So if we've uh, given to the food bank or better still helped out at it, then uh, we've done that for Jesus even if we've got no belief in him at all. But if uh, we're hard-hearted and selfish, then we're out. The verdict depends on what we do. Now, of course, the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is very hot on our duty of care to those experiencing hard times through no fault of their own. The widow whose husband has died, the orphan whose parents may have died or done a runner, and the alien, the traveller in a harsh part of the world. 
they're often cited. And we must not forget that. That is a Christian duty. But it is not the point of this parable. If it was, it would make the rest of the New Testament irrelevant. Why would Jesus have to die on the cross? And if, if this is all that we have to do, do some good. Why is it so vital to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved if we can save ourselves simply by doing a few acts of kindness to the poor and needy? The key to understanding what the criterion for assessment is is verse 40 and its opposite, verse 45. In verse 40 we have the king, remember that's Jesus, will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And conversely, verse 45, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Now brothers is sometimes used in the Gospels for Jesus' half-brothers and sisters. You get that in Matthew 12, 46. But it is most often used in the Gospels and the Epistles, of, uh, as in 12.50, of those who do the will of his Father in heaven. The criterion is this. How someone treats a Christian is a reflection of how they treat Christ. Their attitude and actions towards the followers of Christ are said to be indicative of their attitude and actions towards Christ himself. Whether that's in what we do to the least of these brothers, acts of commission, or what we don't do, acts of omission, we are actually doing or not doing to Christ himself. Do you remember Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts 9? What did Jesus say to Saul? Paul was the name that he adopted after his conversion. What did Jesus say to Saul? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, Saul... It would be lovely to know whether he ever encountered Jesus when Jesus was on earth because what he's doing when he's in this kind of gang who go around trying to find out where the Christians are meeting and dragging them off to be tried and we know he was even there whilst the first Christian martyr, Stephen, was stoned to death and they would have all been in the first you know, two or three years after Jesus' ascension. So, identified and united with Christians is Christ, that an attack on them, Jesus thinks, is an attack on him. An act of kindness to them is an act of kindness to him. Christ is so identified with his people, and they are so united with him, that the church is actually even said to be the body of Christ. He is usually given the role of head, although sometimes he isn't, but usually he is. And we are 
the other organs and limbs that go to make up the body. Now, although in 30 AD Christ ascended to heaven and was seen no more, he nonetheless is still present, incognito, as through his Holy Spirit he lives in the lives of people who together constitute his church, his body, his extension of himself on earth. He is seen in them, or should be seen in our lives. And how people treat Christians is a measure of their regard for him. And that is why as a church we particularly give money to organisations that especially help the persecuted church around the world. Either with advocacy or supplies of food and shelter or Bibles and Christian literature. And that is why as a church many individual members help and support Others, when a family has an extra need, whether it's a joyous one like having a baby, or whether it's a church wedding, or a church funeral, a thanksgiving for the life of a beloved former member, who is, in one sense, still a member. They are merely members of the church triumphant, rather than the church militant here on earth. Interestingly, There's a strong element of surprise here when the king, the son of man, lists the good done and not done. I mean, I'm sure you've probably had the experience of somebody years after the event and years after you've ever forgotten, if you ever remembered in the first place, and they thank you for some act of kindness that you long ago and seemingly quite insignificantly did for them. And And occasionally that may have been a trigger You know, it may have been an old school friend who you kind of meet decades later that something about your attitude to them that set them thinking. And they remembered. And later in life they have encountered other Christians and they have come to faith. And your little way of behaving to them may have been a significant part of their eventual conversion to Christ. Perhaps you never realised how closely the Lord Jesus Christ identifies himself with his people. But he clearly does. And then secondly and finally, the result of the verdict, Matthew 25, 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Well, we've seen how one's attitude to the king determines one's destiny. So his presence or his absence is the main characteristic of the outcome. And let's see where the two groups end up and who they end up with. Verse 34, to those on his right, he rewards. Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Come and share, in other words, in the life of the kingdom. To be blessed is to share life with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The inheritance is eternal life. 
verse 46. And then verse 40, to those on his left who he punishes, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. To be banished from his presence forever and to share the same fate as the devil and his fallen angels in a prepared location. Now the big debate in recent years, probably well, probably from the 1980s I guess, is this. The separation from the presence of God and the distinction between the effect and the experience. While the effect of the verdict lasts forever, the question is, does the experience of the verdict of separation last forever? Or does it only last for a limited time? The unrighteous are annihilated, as the imagery of fire might suggest. The traditional view that both the effect and the experience of separation are eternal conscious, conscious existence has been the view throughout the history of the church. Tertullian, Athanasius, Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, in our own country, Wesley, Whitfield, in America, Jonathan Edwards. In other words, the greats amongst the Christian thinkers. And more recently, by people like Gerald Bray, David Pawson, Donald MacLeod, Jim Packer, Don Carson. The more recent view is that while the effects last forever, the experience does not. This view is called annihilationism. Or with a subtle difference, conditional immortality. But that suggests your default is not to be eternal. But that's a fine distinction. It's been advocated by somebody called W.F. Fudge, which is a bit of an unfortunate name. But people of, uh, certainly my lifetime, people like John Wenham, John Stott, Michael Green, the last three of whom I've had the privilege of knowing and have great respect for. So I reluctantly disagree with them. They are usually motivated by the thought that God's justice can't demand infinite punishment for finite sins. But then sin against an infinitely glorious God, though committed by finite human beings, is infinitely evil and so deserves infinite punishment. Let me very briefly give some reasons which I have found persuasive to stay with the traditional understanding. There are four. Verse 41. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There's obviously some symbolism here because you can't literally have fire and darkness together. But why is hell already in existence? 
And the answer is that angels are immortal creatures and the fallen ones need to be isolated from the rest of creation. And that's why God established it. The second, Revelation 20.10, has the devil being, quote, tormented day and night forever and ever. So presumably the same fate awaits those who follow him. Just as those who follow Christ share his good fortune. And thirdly, what I think for me is the clincher is that that in this passage, eternal punishment parallels eternal life. And eternal must have the same meaning in both phrases. If reward lasts forever, so does punishment last forever. And lastly and fourthly, Jesus said that there was a fate worse than death. And I'm not sure that annihilation, ceasing to exist, elimination, is that. Whereas everlasting conscious punishment certainly is. So on that last day, the day of judgment, there are just two outcomes. There's heaven and there is hell. One with Christ and one without him. And it is forever. It is awful. But in a sense, God gives us what we want. If we want to live for ourselves and not with him, we are allowed to do so. If we want to live for him and with him, it will continue beyond this life. Heaven will be better than we can imagine. We only have human language to describe it. When we pass from this life to the next, we will see it clearly. Hell is worse than we can conceive of. Now how does this motivate um, us to share the gospel? Well, eternal life should motivate us out of gratitude for it. Eternal punishment should motivate us because we want people, whilst they still have time to choose, to escape it through faith in Christ, through trusting in him. And it makes a difference to the church. The historian T.C. Smout attributes, I think he's a sociologist as well as a historian, and I don't know whether he's a believer or not, but he attributes the decline in Scottish church going to the change in emphasis from punishment to love. He writes, the Christian tone began to, to falter around the latter part of the 19th century. Christianity, he says, from the beginning had centred on life after death. If the church was vague about it, men reached their own conclusions. If there was a God, he was good. If he was good, he would send us all to heaven. It would be all right in the end. Now, Smout writes that 
it was this, what he calls, homespun logic that caused the death of hell. And, he says, the emptying of the pews. Church attendance in the 19... In, uh, church attendance in the UK as a whole since 1880 has been in steady decline. You see, we all have one life. During that one life, we are faced with a choice to turn to Christ, to connect with him, and we will be with him forever. Or to stay away from him, remain detached from him, and he will allow us to do so both for now and forever. And we want to help people choose eternal life with Christ. And they do that by seeing the credibility of Christ in us, in our lives, to make them think, and the credibility of Christ's evidence of his life and his teaching. We give them a clear and accurate explanation of the gospel, which the Holy Spirit then works on in their head, well away from us, and the Holy Spirit convinces, convicts, and converts them. Now Christmas is a time of the year when people may well ask us about Christ, Christianity, and it's an opportunity to in some way respond and sometimes in addition to having cards which give an invitation to our Christmas services it's also quite helpful to have a little booklet and we have literally hundreds of these they're called Christmas in Three Words by Vaughan Roberts you can even say it's written by a local lad because this was the first church he came to after he became a Christian at school Um, He lived in uh, Monk Sherbourne. Christmas in three words. Do take one as you go. They're on the table by reception. And uh, put it in your bag or your pocket. And if you get a chance and somebody asks you something about Christmas, you just take it and give it to them and say, this is really what Christmas is all about. It's not long. They'll probably read it. It's quite attractively written as well. So they're there, together with invitation cards. Let me end with a quote by C.S. Lewis. We are all immortal. It's just a question of where we will spend our immortality. Amen.